Mike Sheen, former Herald Sun chief football writer, took me down to meet Demetrio at AFL House. And, and yeah, I, I never forget he took me down there and it was the only time I've ever been in the AFL office, I think, sitting in his office and he, he just, the, just the arrogance of the man and he sort of... I, I remember late in the conversation, you sort of like acknowledged that I was in the room and said something like, are you going to, do I need to worry about you? Or are you going to behave? And, you know, it was, it was almost like, this is the way you need to conduct yourself with your journalism and this, I guess you can understand for some journos how it's pretty, it's easy to fall into line and just not bother going into those dark corners. But I quite enjoyed it. And I like telling the, the full story. Hi, I'm Ben Hart and welcome to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. I've been in the business of telling stories for more than two decades. As a journalist, communications advisor and now heading up my own storytelling-led comms agency, Fireside. In this work, I've always been fascinated by great stories. Why did they work? What made them resonate and connect with people? In this first six-episode season of Storycraft, You'll hear from all sorts of storytellers who will share what they've learned about making stories that simply work. So whether you're in the story business, think storytelling might make you better at what you do, or you just love a good yarn, I promise you'll take something away from these conversations. If you know anything at all about Melbourne, you'll know that the town revolves around Australian rules football. Unparalleled in its popularity and influence, for six months of each year, footy dominates the pages of newspapers, nightly news bulletins, and is the topic of discussion around water coolers every Monday. Its cultural position in the city transgresses class, race and gender. Because of this, the men, and they are almost all men who run the game, enjoy a godlike status in Melbourne and beyond, able to bend politicians and captains of industry to their will. This power also extends to bending and shaping prevailing public narratives. When, as they often do in professional sport, scandals break, power is quickly exerted by head office. Appliant football media is briefed on the real story. Dissenting voices are pushed into the background and the brand is protected. Enter Mick Warner, football reporter at the Herald Sun. Early on in his career, Mick made a decision to step outside the system of patronage and dig beneath the dominant narrative to find the buried skeletons that speak of the heavy moral price the code pays for success. When huge footy news breaks, like the Essendon drug scandal, when virtually a whole team was banned for running a doping program, Mick has refused to play ball and uncovered stories that have caused severe embarrassment to head office. In 2019, tired of the half-truths and PR spin, Mick set out to tell an alternative history of the modern AFL since its creation in the early 1990s, one that re-evaluated the game's guardians and their legacy. As Mick tells it, it is in part a story of the successful power grab by an AFL executive who rode roughshod over their masters and emerged as unaccountable princelings. The result is The Boys Club, a book that chronicles a litany of bullying, intimidation, standover tactics, lack of accountability and so much more. I saw this behaviour firsthand when I worked for the AFL Players Union a decade ago as their communications manager. 
there I discovered that in footy, unless your agenda aligns exactly with the AFLs, the pressure comes down hard and life becomes very difficult. Mick says that while the AFL has been an unbridled success financially and even administratively, there's another story, darker, murkier, that needed to be told. Well, I think what happens in football media is that it's probably safer, better for your career maybe to not really delve. I mean, all of those stories were, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to portray myself as like some superstar who only goes, you know, where no one else will. I just, I'm interested in these stories and often when I go there, I'm the only fishing rod in the water, which doesn't worry me. But often all of those scandals were extremely well covered at the time, but then the show moves on and there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I, what I tended to do over the last 15 years was to go back and look at that and say, okay, well, what actually did happen here? Are there any documents that we can find, you know, any recordings or evidence that will perhaps tell a fuller story of what actually went on here? And when you did that, you could see the pattern of behaviour that was going on. The sad part of that often was that they would, the AFL would very cleverly use the media at the time of those crises happening to manipulate the narrative, to get the public to understand a story, a narrative that they wanted. And then, as I said, it moves on and it's largely forgotten. And there was just so many loose ends for me that, so over time it sort of became this thing that I would always go back and spend some time looking at a scandal and um, trying to tell the, the, the fuller story, if you like, which, which then made you very unpopular with AFLHQ, in the end I, I was going for a run one day in Bali actually and I was frustrated, you know, and I thought I need to write a book to put it in one place and that's what I did. So in the book you really take the reader through a journey of the past 30 years uh, of the AFL administration, um, the machinations, the power plays. Can you briefly just break down what that journey's been? The AFL was used to be the VFL, 12 Victorian clubs, Um and then in the, as the, the, the semi-professional age came and commercialisation, there was some TV money for the first time. So this whole empire really is built on the TV money, which is can be – they've made billions out of it. So by the 80s, they needed a bit more sophistication in the way that the game was governed. So a board of governors where you basically had one representative from each of the clubs on a board running the game, they set up an independent commission – which we absolutely needed. The game needed to have more sort of um, professionalism in the way that it was run. Uh, so that happened in the 80s and you had some real football luminaries on there who, who sort of oversaw the game. But what, what happened, and they served, as I say, at the pleasure of the clubs, what, happened, what, what that morphed into over 30 years was this dictatorship that we have today. And, and it happened by osmosis almost that, hey, suddenly the AFL run – absolutely everything and and that's what I talk about in the book is this process of how we got to having such a powerful mechanism. It's not the commission, by the way, it's the executive that sits under it. Andrew Dimitri really was the game changer. He arrived in 2001, I think, 2000, 2001, and then became the AFL football operations boss and He's a force of nature, Andrew Demetrio. I remember one club president said to me, you know, he was the best visceral 
negotiate he'd ever seen. He could walk into a room. Most people would spend eight hours thinking about what they're going to say and he would just blow them away with his, his ability to, on his feet to, to get what he wanted. He grew up in a fish and chip shop in suburban Melbourne, the son of Greek Cypriot immigrants to become the most powerful person in Australian sport. He's a former AFL player, a former boss of the Players' Union and is now in his ninth season as the AFL Supremo. Hello, I'm Mike Sheehan. Welcome to Open Mike and to my special guest, Andrew Demetriou. Welcome, Andrew. G'day, Mike. Let's have a genial chat tonight, will you? You've been smashing me around the head the last few times we've met. <laughs> on the couch, on 3AW. Can we just have a pleasant fireside chat? In front of the fireside. No, <laughs> not a problem. Be a pleasure. Formidable person, but obviously flawed, as we've seen with the Crown Casino situation. But he was the real game changer. And then McLaughlin, Gil McLaughlin, who replaced him, was really who worked under him. He's been there his whole professional life. Gil was also it's like a child of the system who grew up and was the perfect person to replace Dimitri at the height of the Essendon saga. I tell the book through the prism of those two really powerful characters who sit at the top of this boys' club. So pretend for a moment that the people listening to this podcast know nothing about football. What does the boys' club look like? The boys' club to me is the, is the codependency of the system that rules the game of Australian rules in, in, in particularly in Melbourne, you know, is it? So it's not just the suits or the commissioners at AFL House. It's player agents, the lawyers that they depend on, club presidents. You know, Eddie Maguire, I would say, is a card-carrying, was a card-carrying member of the boys' club. It's into The boys' club goes into the media. That's one of the disturbing things I say in the book is that there are senior journalists who, whether they know it or not, I'm pretty sure they do deep down at night, but they're, they're in it as well. So it's this whole system, snouts in the trough. If you play ball, if you don't rock the boat, you, know, you can get along and live your life and that's the boys' club. So let's just zero in on Demetrio a bit for a second. I mean, and Demetrio is a fascinating character in the book. He's, you know, hard-nosed, highly successful businessman, you know, head kicker, extremely charismatic. You know, he was brought in the AFL to do a specific job and, you know, you talk about how he was he was brought in, you know, because of his extremely hard edge. Tell us more about him as a, as a character in the book. He was the head of it for so long and he, he was encouraged. He's, what you were saying is when they Wayne Jackson was the guy that he replaced and they, you know, you speak to some of the commissioners I did in the book, Bill Kelty says we, were, we wanted someone who could take on the MCC, who could fight hard for TV money and, I mean, you, you can't doubt what he did for the AFL in terms of building the commercial riches, you know, he did the deal with the Packers and... But there was this other thing going on, which I, you know, my antenna was up to straight away, which is just that ruthlessness. Given Homer's inside information, Homer Legrand of The Australian, he must know something. He's, he's been so intrepid reporter on this whole matter and got so much of it wrong, he's probably been consistently wrong again. I, I hesitate <laughs> to ask, but why, why is Chip Homer? That's his name, I think. Oh, that's his real name. Chip is his so. nickname. I think so. Yeah. But he's been so deplorable thus far, uh, got so much wrong, he, 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 might, he might fluke it. Do I get sued along with you if you say stuff on the radio? I think I do, Andrew. 
Oh, well, you do too, Jerry. I haven't Jerry. said anything, anything defamatory other than he's got stuff wrong. You know, I mean, Dimitri, I'm happy to talk about this, um, was attempted to have me sacked uh, at one point, you know, in 2013 when the Essendon thing was was going on. Now, I don't think that's his role, do you, to have try and have people sacked, but that's just the way he is when at all costs. I don't go into that in the book. I'm, I acknowledge it up front just to be clear, you know, that it happened because I thought if I didn't mention that in the author's note, people would say, oh, well, he, he had that blue with Dimitri. They took my media accreditation off me so I couldn't get into the MCG or any grounds to work, and that's just sort of the way that they roll. So there's a story I've heard you tell. It's not in the book, but it was the time that you were first appointed to be a full-time sports reporter and you went down to AFL head office to meet Demetrio. It was a really good illustration of the pressure that's applied to journalists straight off the bat to really tell the AFL story rather than holding them accountable. Can you tell us a bit more about that story? In about 2007-8, I became full-time in the sport department covering the politics of football. But, yeah, I went down, Mike Sheen, the former Herald Sun chief football writer, took me down to meet Demetrio at AFL House. And, and yeah, i I'll never forget he took me down there. and It was the only time I've ever been in the AFL office, I think, really. <laughs> um, but in, sitting in his office and he, he just, the, just the arrogance of the man and he sort of I, – I remember late in the conversation, he sort of acknowledged that I was in the room and said something like, are you going to, do I need to worry about you? Are you going to behave? And so it wasn't like this light bulb moment because I already knew, but it always stuck out in my mind that, you know, it was was almost like, you know, this is, this is the way you need to conduct yourself with your journalism and this. So I always thought that was a bit, bit sick, but I guess um, you can understand for some journos, how it's pretty, it's easy to fall into line and just not bother getting into those, going into those dark corners. But I quite enjoyed it. So, Mick, I'm just interested in what is it specifically about you and the way that you do things that means you're able to resist those entreaties to always swim between the flags. Yeah, like a, a club, a club president once said to me, asked me, "Why do you do this? Why don't you just swim between the flags?" Don't be an enemy of the state," he said. "You could make a lot of money you know, if you uh, just play ball." But but how many of those conversations would happen every year to every single new journalist that comes into the system when they're basically leaned on to play ball? I think every journalist who comes through would, at some point, meet that resistance. One of the things I found intriguing about the AFL, and you, you know, you, you've worked briefly in this space, we worked at the Herald Sun briefly together, is a journalist could ring up about something as price of entry into the footy or the cost of a pie and have their head bitten off by the media person. That's their sort of the front office mentality is to be very aggressive, um, which I discovered right from the start, which I found was unusual. But when you get 20 years on, you realise it's part of the system to create this sort of fear mentality for journalists that don't you take us on. You know, and then there's the background briefing, the the calls to editors, and to try and undermine the reporter that he's on some sort of agenda. You know, and I'm sure it goes on in other walks of life and journalism. But the AFL, you know, it's John Kane who I interviewed, sadly not long before he passed away, uh, and he would know. He 
He was the Premier of Victoria for a long time. He said the AFL is the most powerful entity he'd ever seen in his um, life in Victoria. It says a lot about a football code, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I, as you know, I worked in your world a little bit a while ago and I came to work in the football industry working for the AFL Players Union after a long stint in politics and, I mean, I was pretty shocked at the kind of control that head office had over the football media that was covering them and, I mean, it's pretty it – was like nothing I had ever seen in politics in terms of the ability to say, you write this story this way. So you're just going back to your telling of that story and your absolute commitment to stepping outside of this this system of patronage. Like I really am interested in where that comes from because it has been a hard road to hoe for you. You have been ostracised by your colleagues. You have had, you know, your bosses receive phone calls telling them to sack you and remove your, you know, football accreditation. Like what is it about you as a journalist and as a person that makes you want to step outside that system? Because there are actually a lot of people who, like me, think that stinks, that the system needs to change. And so it's not like you're just on your own. The information you get comes from somewhere. There, There is an appetite for change and it's going to be hard. But isn't that what you, when you're a journalist, that's what you're supposed to do. I would have, I always thought that you don't want to become a card-carrying member of the boys' club. You want to scrutinise it, report on it, um, ask questions of it. That's kind of what your job is. So I don't sort of see it like the way you've – that might be what happened, but it's, it's just your job uh, and I enjoy it. I like being able to revisit something that was portrayed in one way, get the facts – and actually show, well, that's not what happened. This is what actually happened and this is why you did it. And more often than not with the AFL, it's the commercial interest that takes over the the actual uh, integrity, what actually happened. Yeah. You know, they have these pre-ordained outcomes. So they get a scandal right at the start. Essendon's an example. But at the very start of the Essendon scandal, which is probably the biggest scandal in the history of Australian sports, within 48 hours they had concocted a strategy to get out of that. I can confirm today that the Essendon Football Club, James Hurd, Danny Corcoran, Bruce Reed, and Mark Thompson have been charged under the AFL rules in relation to the supplements program at the club in 2011-2012. They're all charged with engaging in conduct that is unbecoming or likely to prejudice the interests or reputation of the Australian Football League or to bring the game of football into disrepute, contrary to AFL Rule 1.6. So this is what I say about the AFL. They're not reckless cowboys. Strategically, they're brilliant. You know, they, they have got legal minds in there, strategic minds that they can plot their way out of almost anything. But more often than not, that was at the expense of what actually happened. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. In this episode, a conversation with Mick Warner, Herald Sun journalist and author of The Boys Club. If you like Storycraft, check out The Story, a new digital publication that dives headfirst into the world of stories, exploring their power and mechanics. Head to the-story.com. 
media. Or go to the link in the show notes to check out pieces by some of Australia's leading storytellers, including Clementine Ford on the joy and challenges of writing nonfiction and Dorian Linsky on the British island that used the power of story to drive some of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. The story is for anyone who tells stories, loves stories, or is just curious about how and why they work. So the book breaks down and reevaluates the AFL executives' handling of the um, Essendon drug scandal and reveals all sorts of deeper truths and realities about how that played out. But there's another story that you focus on as well, which really kind of personifies the human toll of the AFL's behaviour, and that's the story of Dean Bailey. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, he's the Mel- he's the coach of the Melbourne Footy Club in in the season that they tank games. And of course, if you you remember, they tanked to get the number one and two draft picks. They deliberately lost games. There was a conspiracy to lose games. We know that because the transcripts, which I got my hands on many years later, prove that nine Melbourne officials confessed to the AFL in their integrity investigation that they had indeed set out to make sure they didn't win a certain number of games to get those draft picks. That's indisputable. But when the AFL was presented with this indisputable evidence, they didn't want that to be the outcome because of the ramifications of what that would have meant for the game commercially. Okay, so we've had fixed matches basically under our watch. What we'll do is we'll come up with this alternative outcome, which is that, you know, bringing the game into disrepute or something, and we'll, we'll pin it on Dean Bailey, the coach, and Chris Connolly, the, the football boss. But that's not what happened. Now, this went right to the cl- top of the club. It was an orchestrated campaign. So Dean Bailey knew what was going on, but he didn't orchestrated. No, but he was the fall guy. There's always a fall guy. Now, he rightly and his legal team didn't like the way it was playing out, but the pressure that was put on him, the threats that were made to him, look, take the penalty or you'll never work in footy again. He thought about it and he took the penalty. Now, whilst this is going on, he got cancer, his family and Dean himself said that they believe that his cancer was linked to the investigation and he died not long after the, you know, farcical penalties were handled down. Now, to me, that was just a raw, tragic personal story that I was able to tell that sort of demonstrates the themes that I'm talking about. So thanks for coming, guys. As you know, uh, Dean Bailey passed away at 2 o'clock this morning with Karen by his side after a brief but courageous battle with uh, a very aggressive lung cancer. Dean was just 47 years old. And as everyone will appreciate, his loss is devastating, first and foremost for his family, uh, but of course for everyone at our club and for many across the football industry. So what was it about Bailey's story that was so powerful to you? What a tragic end to his life that he, he believes is linked to the way that these people conduct themselves in the name of the empire. And I just thought that it was a powerful example of, of what's rotten about this System. So, Mick, I'm not saying for a moment that there's any suggestion the AFL killed Dean Bailey, but anyone reading the book gets the distinct impression that they certainly are culpable for his death. Is that your view? Well, I, that's that's certainly what he said, but it's it's more just the, the, the way that the and obviously when when it's happening, the AFL aren't thinking that he's going to get cancer, and they might dispute that it's linked. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but uh, but it's more. The um, 
I wonder if they ever stop to think about that. When we do these things, there is a human toll here. You wonder whether they actually ever do stop to, I doubt it, having knowing the way they work, but, you know, so that's why I was saying we're not, it's not just talking about integrity and what they're not words. It's humans' lives and, and that we're talking about. So one, to me, one of the most powerful aspects of the book is that it keeps going back again and again and again to the to the human cost of this system. And, you know, when we think about this system, you know, a lot of people would say, and these are probably footy fans, would say, well, you know, the, the game's well run, it makes a lot of money, you know, we love watching it. Like what's really the problem if it gets a bit messy behind the scenes in terms of the way that it's run? And it seems like you're really committed to telling the story of why that does matter, and that's because there's a human cost to these decisions. But you can't also sort of espouse all these virtues that we have, you know, and support every cause and have a 28-person integrity department but actually compromise on integrity time after time. You just can't. I, to me, that's laughable. And I, I'm pretty sure most people in footy would acknowledge that. It's just whether you say it or not. So if you were to go outside and talk to the average footy fan on the street, how much do you think they've bought into the dominant narrative that's been sold to them and how conversely open are they to the idea that there's something rotten at the heart of this, do you think? I've got a lot of faith in footy. I reckon most football supporters who actually are interested in the machinations of head office, because not everyone is, I get that, you know, you like to come. Some people don't care about it and that's fair enough. But I reckon everyone who's given some thought to it would agree that it's not right. The one thing that a lot of people said to me when they read the Essendon chapter is, oh, I didn't realise what was going on there because I just had this perception. And I suppose that perception they had was, was what the one that the AFL wanted them to have. But when you sort of get into the weeds, you can see the, the actual story. And, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love it if everyone could read the book, but it's obviously not going to happen. I was looking at... Um, like the NFL in America, there's 32 teams, but they're all spread out across that massive country and each town has one team. And yeah. Whereas the uniqueness of Melbourne is that the whole power base is here, 10 of the 18 teams are here. It's all the way that the competition is designed, That is, it is in Melbourne where this sort of this boys club is based and it's not like any other sport really, is it? Like cricket... It's all around the country. It's spread out. This is a very Melbourne. You learn a lot about Melbourne through footy. It's what Kane was saying. And so, I, so I know on a number of occasions in this conversation, you've really balked at the idea of you being some kind of like lone crusader or or hero or whatever you want to call it, fighting the good fight. And you've got this massive machine that you're going up against every day, and you're kind of waving your arms in the air and you're saying, "Hey, everyone." There's actually a lot more to this than you see and there's corruption at the heart of this. And if you actually saw what went on day to day and the way that these people behave, you would not feel good about the the backroom dealings and the culture of, of this game that we love. And so isn't that a big job to go up against this whole thing? Yeah, it is. And, you know, my wife sometimes says, why do you, why do you bother or, or, you know, let it go, you know, maybe maybe I should. And maybe the book is a footnote or endnote on it to say, well, here it is, you know. I mean, do I need to keep doing this for the rest of my life? <laughs> I don't 
I think so. Yeah, so we're coming to the end now. Um, but can I just say you sound a bit weary and you sound tired and you sound like, you know, I'm sure this is a burden that you're happy to carry, but it is a burden. And I just think wouldn't it be a tragedy if this was your farewell note to footy after all the effort you'd put in to tell this story? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Does that matter? Like, I mean, you. What I guess, do you really want to be a football person your whole life? That's the other thing. Anyway, that's a whole another story, Ben. <laughs> but uh, yeah. um, no, I feel like I've achieved what I wanted to in the book. Yeah. Like I said at the start, you could. One of the frustrations in newspapers, you can write a great piece, but it's gone yeah. the next day. Books are a little bit more permanent, and so uh, I thought it was a story that deserved to be pulled together and told in its entirety. That was Mick Warner, Herald Sun journalist and author of The Boys Club, published by Hachette and available in all good bookshops. This is episode three of a six-part season of Storycraft. If you like what you've heard, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could spread the word about Storycraft. Tell your friends, colleagues, and rate and review us on iTunes. Doing this helps more people find the show. Storycraft is produced by Dashiell Lawrence of Retrospect and presented by me, Ben Hart. Thanks for listening. Listener.